0: The views on this podcast belong uniquely and solely to the mouths from which they emanate. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Linguist Podcast. Very special episode today. We are interviewing Dr. Karen Rice of the University of Toronto. We will be talking to Dr. Rice about the Dene languages, uh, previously called Athabaskan, but we, we get into that. And then uh, we also, which will be the next episode, uh, we'll split this in half. The next episode will be with Dr. Rice about community based research which is near and dear to my heart, as as you'll hear in the episode today. As I've told you in previous episodes, I am coming to you today from the radio station at McNeese State University in Lake Charles, Louisiana, KBYS 88.3 FM. I am recording in Newsroom 103 here at the station. As you might have noticed, we're a few days late in getting this episode to you. I've done this before and I don't like doing this. So, we're trying obviously not to continue to be late in our podcast. But remember, we are still learning and, um, you know, we're getting better every week. One of the reasons that we're late, though, is because David Wynn here at the uh, radio station is helping me to go back and improve the audio of some of the interviews that I had done in the past. So like this particular interview with uh, Dr. Karen Rice, my audio sounded really bad. Um, I'm just going to be honest with you. I What I found out was I was in a very echoey room and I had a very poor microphone and it just was not a good situation. Not only that, but as you'll hear in this interview, I... Hit the table a lot (laughs) and, uh, you know, made a lot of banging noises. And we tried to fix this as much as we could. Dr. Rice's audio was fine. Mine was bad. But it sounds better than it did. But, you know, we've had some very interesting interviews with some very interesting guests that we believe our audience would very much enjoy hearing from. So I would ask for your patience on one or two more of the upcoming episodes uh, with a little bit of poor quality. But we're already getting better. I will say this. Upcoming, we have recorded an interview with uh, Dr. David Zork of uh, Bisayan fame. Uh, He uh, is a uh, historical linguist in the Philippines and uh, basically wrote the seminal work on the classification of the Bisayan languages. So uh, we've already recorded his interview, and he's coming up after Dr. Rice's. Uh, I also spent uh, uh, a couple of Mondays ago— Uh, sat down with uh, Dr. Barry Ancelet of the University of Lafayette in Louisiana to talk about uh, Cajun French and Louisiana French. And I left his house and went right over to talk to Amanda Lafleur about uh, the grammar of Louisiana French. So that's coming up as well. And those interviews, the sound quality on those are a lot better because we switched to the Zoom recorder Uh, for the uh, in-person, you know, in-CTO interviews that we did there. But those sound great as well. We also have a very interesting interview coming up about American Sign Language. And uh, it's fascinating. You're not going to want to miss that one. By the way, as you know, we just spent three weeks with Dina Stankovic talking about Serbian and Slavic languages. I got an interesting email uh, this past week telling us that we were very, very popular in that area of the world uh, uh, over the past couple weeks in the language category of podcasts. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Remember, as always, that we will be posting on the website at weeklylinguist.com all of the show notes In case you want to follow up with the things we talk about or learn a little bit more or so on and so forth, we'll put in links, uh, information, things like this that will help you, you know, delve a little further into the conversation that uh, Dr. Rice and I are about to have. And as always, remember that we are on Instagram and Twitter at Weekly Linguist. We're starting to get more and more actual feedback and communication on those platforms. So check us out, subscribe, uh, follow us, and uh, interact with us. Let us know what we're doing well and what we can do better. Suggest an interview. um, But also remember, in the end, subscribe to the podcast because that helps us out a lot. So on Apple, iTunes, or any of the other podcast platforms that you use, please remember to subscribe and rate us. All right, without further ado, Dr. Karen Rice. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Karen Rice. I want to th- th- say thank you for joining us today. I um, would tell the, uh, our listeners how I met you and, um, and, and how I became familiar with your work. There were, it was three or four years ago at the very first LSA, Linguistic Society of America, meeting that I attended, and I believe it was the one, it was a cold day in D.C., in Washington, D.C., and there was a panel discussion about community-based research. And I sat in on this discussion, and it really, it really triggered something for me, um, the, uh, the the concepts and the precepts and the ideas of, the, of community-based research. And uh, I, I don't think I ever told you this, but I actually went back, my, my director of studies is Judy Maxwell at Tulane, and I, I talked to her about it a lot. And we actually created a little course, and I did an independent study with Judy on community-based oh. research. And, um, and, and I actually incorporated a good bit of the, I was able to incorporate a good bit of the concepts into my, the work that I'm doing in the Philippines because what I found was it was already community-based research, and I didn't know it. <laughs> and so it, it, it all worked out really well. And then you sent me that PowerPoint presentation and uh, I'm going to go ahead and I'll post that on the show notes for the website and um, so that our listeners can see that as well. But what we want to talk to you today about is the Athabascan languages and uh, Dini uh, specifically, as yeah. well as um, this idea of community-based research. So correct me if I get anything wrong here, but Dr. Karen Rice is a professor at the University of Toronto, the Professor of Linguistics. She also got her uh, her PhD from the University of Toronto. Uh, she, you were born in Syracuse, New York. So you went from cold weather to cold weather, it looks
1: like. <laughs> uh, I went to, from cold weather to not quite so cold
0: weather. <laughs> oh, okay, right? okay, yeah. nice. Um, okay, and um, you are a a prolific writer and, and publisher. They, uh, I have actually a lot of stuff here that we read in preparation. Um, but I would say that your your primary research focuses would be, well, specifically as to languages, the Athabascan family, or Denian specifically. But then you also talk, like we said, um, and you're very interested in the community-based research. And yeah. um, so we wanna talk about both of those with you today. So thank you for joining us. Okay,
1: well, thank you for inviting me. <laughs>
0: Oh, I did have one other note here. You Am I correct that you've been president of both the Canadian Linguistic Association and the Linguistic Society of America?
1: That's right, and I just finished as president of the Society for the Study of Indigenous Languages of the Americas. Oh.
0: will you stay busy.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I that's think cool. I'm a little bit too busy at the moment.
0: <laughs> well, I, I know the feeling, especially under the circumstances yeah. with all that's going on these days. Yeah. But I want to start, uh, let's talk about the Athabascan family in particular. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, and in general, and then Denny in particular. I'm looking at this map of uh, the Athabascan languages, and one of the things that I'm yeah. finding really interesting here is that it basically starts at the Canadian border and covers a, a good bit of the pretty much all of the northwest of Canada all the way through the lion's share of Alaska. But then what's fascinating is... If you come all the way down here into Texas and New Mexico and Arizona, you also see uh, groupings of Athabascan languages. So uh, I guess my first question was, can you tell us a little bit about the family and why do you see this huge divide between the two groups?
1: Well, I don't know why you see the, two, the huge divide. People migrated, but the family, uh, the general hypothesis is that it started in the north and people migrated first to the ones that are on the Pacific coast, and then to the uh, later to the uh, ones that are in the American Southwest. And um, I guess I'll just mention one other thing that's kind of interesting about the family is that there's a hypothesis that these languages are related to languages of Siberia, and that family if that's right, it's called Dene in a saying. I just want to also say that the word Dene is now used for the family, and so we don't really use the word Athabascan that much anymore. Um, so it's a little bit complicated to know what you're talking about when you're talking about Denne, But So I'll try to be clear whether I'm talking about the language or whether I'm talking about the family.
0: Okay, well, then let's go ahead and clarify this. The family is called Denny now. Yeah. Okay, and yeah. uh, so but we—that's
1: that's the word for person, for person in the languages.
0: Okay, yeah. So, so it
1: has different forms, like in Navajo. What was used to be called Navajo is now called Dina, and that's the same word. Um, that's that. So that's what the word the Navajos themselves would use.
0: Oh, I see. Okay, so yeah. The, um, the when I had done my research here, I noticed um, ter- languages that I recognized, like Navajo. Slevy, Chippewyan, Chirikahua. So there's been a change in the names of most of them or just Um, the family?
1: uh, uh, No, I think, well, I think that people are turning more and more to using the indigenous names for their languages. And so what we see is a lot of replacement. And, you know, some people will still say Slavy, but uh, most people are trying to say Dene instead. And the same with Navajo, I think most people are just, just trying to say Diné instead of saying instead of saying Navajo,
0: oh okay, I see well, there are three still three groups um are they still divided northern Pacific coast and Southern
1: Yes, yeah, and there's a lots of controversy about genetic relationships oh, uh, okay, so, so they they know that they're closely related. There's no, con- no controversy whatsoever that these are all closely related languages. And then there's another language, Klinget, which is also related um, a little bit more distantly. And then Iyak, which is a little bit closer to the Dene languages.
0: Well, can you speak like uh, maybe one or two or three features or, or what is it specifically that separates this, la- this family I guess, from other families, so to speak. Is it, uh, is it, are there particular features, or is it a historical question, or what are we looking at?
1: Well, I guess if linguistically what we could say is that the verb word is really complicated, and it's got lots in it that's not in other languages. And so that's a real defining factor because the verbs are really similar across the family. And From um, the shape of morphemes to the order of morphemes. So basically, what you put in one verb is kind of equivalent often to what you would put in a full sentence uh, in, in language like English.
0: So for our listeners, this is something we would call a, a, a highly synthetic language.
1: Yeah, polysynthetic, Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah. This is those ones where yeah. you have one word and it's absolutely one word, but like you said, it could, it, it could give a whole sentence for what other languages
1: yeah. would require. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, that's actually, that's interesting. Let's see. What do I have next here? I wanted to ask you about the, let's say the sociolinguistic or sociocultural situation of the peoples and the languages. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about their vitality, you know, are they endangered? Are, are there threats? And then I also noticed that some of these languages have official status. So what is the, um, what is the vitality status of these languages?
1: Um, that's a hard question to answer because what's happening in a lot of places is that there's been a lot of language loss, but now there's a real emphasis on language revitalization. So if you look at what's going on according to the census, what you find is there aren't so many people that have a Dene language as their first language. This is the Canadian census I'm talking about. But there are lots of people that are now learning the languages. And so it's a kind of a complex question. And I have to be honest and say, I kind of try to stay away from it. Um, I'm not so keen on the word endangered. Uh, And I think the other aspect to it is people mean different things by saying that they speak a language. So for some people, if they can introduce themselves in their language, then they feel like they speak the language. And for other people, there's a lot more than that. And so I just think we've got to be really careful to not exclude people who think of themselves as speaking a language because we've got these sort of narrow definitions of what it means. Oh,
0: that's fair. That's interesting. I, I, yeah. um, but would you also say, though, that these languages are maybe limited to certain domains then?
1: Uh, yeah, they, they probably are. Well, for instance, most places, there's not too much language in the schools. Um they might be more home languages. Uh, they might not be home languages. They might be languages that maybe two people speak with each other. So I think that it varies a lot. So there's no, you know, and there's lots of places where there are, um, I, I think I'll have to define this, master apprentice programs going on. Uh, so Semester apprentice programs are when a person who's interested in learning to speak the language spends as much time as they can with a person who speaks the language, and they try to stay in the language as much as possible. So there's a lot of different things going on. There are immersion programs in schools somewhere. So I sort of feel like we've got to take a positive view about what's going on. Because I think that otherwise it's just too discouraging, and there's lots of posi- there's lots of awareness about the languages right. and people wanting to speak them right. so whether they speak them or not that's a different thing, but they want to right.
0: yeah Judy and I had we did our first episode with Judy Maxwell and we had talked about the same thing these master apprentices programs there were she had mentioned one I don't know, Karen, my, my my memory is bad. It always has been. But she had mentioned one in California that... Uh,
1: yeah, Leanne Hinton. Yeah.
0: yeah Leanne Hinton it. was that's the it. person
1: who started it. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: that's it. And so, well, cool. Um, let's see. About the, the languages specifically, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. Um, okay. But uh, we wanted to also talk a little bit about the actual languages themselves. So yeah. um, you talked about in... Uh, uh, some of your papers, you said there was a three-way contrast in laryngeal consonants. And uh, we wanted you to say, if, could you tell the, remember, not all of our listeners are familiar with these things. So uh, yeah. would you tell our listeners, what are laryngeal consonants and what is this three-way contrast?
1: So uh, what it means is that, like in English, we have a sound t- and a sound d-. And what we say about the T is that it's voiceless and, and aspirated. And what we say about the D is that it's voiced. So there's that same kind of distinction, but there's one more. And so uh, let me just give you a triplet of words. Um, so that the word, if you said seta, that means my father that would be written with a T, and that would be called voiceless aspirated. And then if you said said da, that would mean my chin, and that would be called voiceless unaspirated. And if you said said ta, that would be uh, my feather, and that would be called uh, um, ejective or glottalized. And so what's happening is that different things are going on, at the larynx, uh, so that you've got different phonation, what's called phonation types.
0: So these are the, we, we, for the listeners that don't know, we talk about sounds being contrastive. And so what you're saying is these particular sounds can make the difference in a word.
1: Yeah, that's between, right.
0: Yeah, like tot and dot. You know, the T and yeah. the D make a difference in the word. So these sounds make a difference in the word. They're contrastive. And uh, yeah, yeah. See, this is, one of the things that I like about this podcast is we get to talk about some of these things, because these are kind of things that most people have never heard about, and I think they find it interesting. Um, Okay, second question was, what are affricate sequences? And I I have to confess to you that I didn't read this particular paper, Lisa did, but what are affricate sequences, and what role do they play?
1: Uh, Well, affricates are a kind of sound, and They're made up of what's called a stop, followed by what's called a continuant. So in English, we don't have too many affricates, but one of them is in a word like church, the sound at the beginning that's written with CH, and the sound at the end that's written with CH. So that's one. So if you try making one, you'll find that your tongue starts off touching somewhere Behind your teeth, and then you the, then the tongue goes down, and it makes a sh sure sound. So it's kind of a combination of a t and a
0: sh sure sound. This is why sometimes you see these written. There's uh, different ways of writing it, but sometimes you see it written uh, phonologically or phonemically as t and an s. It looks like a t and an s. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not describing it well because it's not an actual s. It's more like a. But it, yeah. uh, then you'll see like a d. And then, like, a, the, the symbol for je, okay. and that'll be the je. Yeah. Yeah, because it's basically, yeah. it's a combination of two sounds that follow from each other, right? Yeah. And
1: what you find in a lot of languages is that there's just way more affricates than that. So, English has some, like, a word like quartz, ends in a TS. Um but, but they're pretty rare. And when I say T S, I'm talking about the sound, not the spelling. Of course. Yeah, of course. So, uh, so it's important to keep those separate from each other. So, uh, so what we wanted, what we find in Dene languages is that there, this is languages of the whole family, is that there's way more affricates. So we've got, uh, and not only are there more. Africates in terms of putting things together. So there's an affricate like, uh, that we would write in English TL. And, but, so that would be pronounced either TL or CL. Um, but then there's also one that if we had it in English, we would write DL. And so that, uh, so that that's the, <laughs> we had voiceless unaspirated stops. This would be a voiceless unaspirated Africa of Africa. And there's also a an ejective one, so that sounds like ah. Uh,
0: and and is basically the role that they play is basically just like any other consonant in a language, and that. That's they, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And I, I, if I thought about it, I could probably come up with a set of words that were differentiated just by that sound.
0: Right. Sure. Sure. Um, so, yeah. but remind us uh, how many actual like consonant and vowel sounds. And if I remember right, I did see that there's a variety. There's a lot of variety among the languages as to their inventories. But generally speaking, how how many vowels and consonants are we talking about?
1: Um, Well, it depends on how you count vowels. So the the vowels are interesting because they're... So in the the languages of the people I work with, there are... Oh, ooh, there are six basic vowels, but then they can be nasalized. And so that sounds sort of like a French vowel that's with it, with written with an N after it. And uh, so an example would be the word for after, which would be Gauguin, With So I, I'm hoping it sounds kind of nasalized. Uh, and then there's also vowels with uh, tones. And so, some so I'll just give you a pair of words. Okay. If you say the word "sa," it means "son," and if you say the word "sa" in one variety of the language, it means "beaver." And so, the only difference between them is that you're steady on one of them and you're going up on the other. Let me just give you one more pair because I think it might be easier to hear it in these words. The word for uh, to go somewhere, go to, some, to somewhere, is go t'sin, that means to there. And the word for uh, from there is go t'sin. And so on go t'sin, you should be able to hear a difference between the two syllables. Where So that's the one for from, and the one for to, They both the tone, the pitch of the voice is the same on both of them.
0: See, I I only hear that because I've studied those things and I've looked at them, you know, and and so I'm hoping, I I, I think that that we'll be able to hear that, our listeners will be able to hear it, but it's interesting because a friend of mine, literally 10 minutes ago, we were talking about, because he had spent four months in China, and we were talking about these tones, and so I I don't know which of the inventory these languages have, but I know you have flat tones, rising tones, lowering tones, and either these dipping tones, so... Yeah, yeah, so the one I heard well, you say was more of a rising tone.
1: Yes, that's right. It, we call it a high tone. Mm-hmm. And so we just write one of them. We just write that high tone in most of the languages. Some of the languages, though, the tones are completely reversed. And so in those languages, the one that I said meant from would mean to, and the one that I said meant to would mean from.
0: Oh, so that's a dialectic variation.
1: Yeah, well, it's between, there are different languages. And, um, uh, so it's sorry. just that something that's, so was, is that's reconstructed as a glottal stop. So that's like in, uh, uh, if you, um, have that pause in there, then that's called a glottal stop. And so it, it, it seems like what happened historically is that in some languages that developed into a high tone and in some languages it developed into a low tone.
0: And how are those written? Are they written with, like, acute and grave accents, or or they... Yeah, ended, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So, let's see, The uh, I have to do this in my head. Um, a high tone is an acute accent, which means it yeah, goes from, right. from yeah. bottom left to top right, so...
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. And usually, for most of the languages, just one tone is written, because they only have two tones, and so... It seems like it's not worth writing, right. taking the energy to write all those extra tones when you don't need to. Right,
0: right. I've always found that fascinating, and I admit I'm glad I never studied a total language because my hearing's not good enough <laughs> to be able to do it. You know what?
1: You learn to hear it. It's, uh, it's, and people give you lots of help in how to hear it.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I, I, one of the things that I had to learn studying Philippine languages was the glottal at the end of a word. And it took me a long time. I had to listen over and over. And because they weren't writing it in their orthography, a lot of the Filipinos weren't hearing it because they didn't realize it was there. Yeah. And so it, it, that the difference between a word like isda and da and it took me a long time to learn to hear that, but I think yeah. I finally did. But, and then
1: once you hear it, you, you wonder how you ever didn't hear it. Yeah. <laughs> and, I think that's true whenever you're learning another language, though. That uh, you have to get your ear tuned in to that language.
0: Well, you know, Karen, I was joking with Judy a few uh, a few days ago when I learned. I learned. I speak fluent French and fluent Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese. And I told her, I said, I was a lot younger when I was learning those two, and <laughs> my my, my in the Philippines is not nearly as good because I had a lot more energy yeah. and time back then. But yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you also talk about in in your papers that these languages are relatively immune. Those were your words, I believe, to borrowing. And so when, when we talk about borrowing, we talk about languages coming into contact. Sometimes, and there are lots of reasons and how it's done, but sometimes these languages will have a word, will not have a word for something, and they'll come in contact, and now they have the concept and they need the word. But you talk about how uh, these languages are relatively immune to borrowing. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: That's actually what Edward Sapir said. And um, he was a really well-known linguist in the early part of the last century. And he did work with speakers of lots of languages, lots of different languages. And he wrote these wonderful grammars of these languages. So I would say that that's probably less true today because there's a lot of English in the language. And some of it might not be um, borrowing so much as just switching back and forth between um, the Dene language and English. So if you listen to the radio, say, you'll hear a lot of English in um, in with the Dene language. But um, what you find... So, for instance, if you look at um, Navajo, you'll find that there's quite a lot of Spanish words. Uh, in Navajo, because it's the American Southwest. Right. And so there was a lot of contact with Spanish. Most of these words tend to be for things that weren't there before. So uh, words like uh, apple is one that I think of. But people will also make up words for those. So that it depends on the language a lot. In the other languages that I work with speakers of, What we find is a lot of church vocabulary that is uh, borrowed from French, um, and these were kind of indirect borrowings from French, and a lot of uh, store things like tea and coffee. And it depends a lot on the variety, the community you go to, how much contact there was. Uh, and because uh, in a lot of communities, I think they must. I don't know this. I'm just speculating. I think they must have gotten things from other communities where, where they didn't come directly to their community but came through another community, so that they made up names for them instead. But uh, yeah, there's lots of. So it depends on the language. The Alaskan languages. Uh, some of them have a lot of loan words from Russian because Russia. Uh, owned Alaska for a long
0: time right, right so right. well a, a lot of these words so kinda, they get borrowed a lot of the a lot of the borrowings come in in groupings and like domains and so yeah. you see this situation where you might have a whole list of words that are borrowed be, in a particular scenario or situation right like a like a like yeah. a merchant or going to the market or like the famous example with english and french all of the words for meat pork beef and all.
1: Right, right.
0: Yeah. It's a, I it's should
1: also to. say that there are languages with words borrowed from other indigenous languages as well, and so that that's so it's not only from European languages. There are other indigenous languages because a lot of groups intermingled a lot, a lot of intermarriage, and so that you find loanwords from other indigenous languages too.
0: Well, how are the how are the distinctions or the lines between the languages typically drawn? Or are they drawn on you know? As well as I do, there's a lot of different ways that we can draw a line between two languages. Some of them, some of it's very, some of it's very obscure ideas. Some of it's political. Some of it's geographical. Some of it's historical. Or, or the, are they classified or referred to generally uh, uh, socially, or is there more of a linguistic determination between the between the languages?
1: I I think it depends on um, who you ask. Um, That's that's always the answer. That's
0: always the answer.
1: Because Well, I think that linguists tended to use a lot of uh, phonological criteria. So all of those consonants that we were talking about develop in different ways in the different languages, or what the linguists call languages. But the people don't necessarily think of themselves as those people. And I think historically that people in a lot of places... There were way fewer groups that they thought of. And now that they're settled into communities, now there are more groups that they think of. So I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. I think it's a really interesting question, but it's not a, it's not a straightforward answer to it.
0: Yeah, I've, I've often said that's the one question that we think we should be able to answer and we can't because we, yeah. we've we never been able to decide where to draw the lines between languages. Yeah. I know in the work that I do, the grammar and the phonology, when I say phonology, I mean the sound system for our listeners, so this, this, this consonants and the vowels, it's all pretty much the same, and the, the primary differences are mostly the words, what we call the lexicon. Yeah. So, and it's... A,
1: yeah, but, but even within a community, you can find differences in lexicon, and you can find differences in pronunciation, so I don't, you know, I don't there's a lot of individual history that enters into it. Right.
0: Okay. Um, You discuss how the languages have not shown the expected changes in consonant inventory size among borrowing situations. Uh, Most borrowing contexts talked about in linguistics and Creole studies consider contact between languages of power disparity. Often an indigenous language and a colonizing language And how that leads to loss or obsolescence of features. So here's the question. Were there any such disparities between, I'll change this out, we'll change this to um, Denny, the Athapascan languages and the other indigenous languages that were in contact, such as Blackfoot, could this contribute to the lack of inventory fluctuation? I think she was uh, uh, talking about, um, you know, some of the the borrowing and some power disparities among other groups like the Blackfoot or so on and how that affected some of the changes in the language. Any thoughts yeah. on that?
1: I think I understand what she's saying. Um, I. It's sort of hard to know how to answer that question because the languages tend to have pretty big inventories. Um, some are much larger than others. But it's making me think that if you look at languages like Navajo and Apache and I don't know if this is what I'm going to say is right or not mm-hmm. but those people moved a long way and they came into contact with a lot of people and their consonant inventories are somewhat smaller so they don't have quite as many I don't they don't have as many places of articulation so, for instance, in English, we've got P, T, and K, and those are three places of articulation. So the sounds are formed at different places in the mouth. Right. Uh, so I think that Navajo has fewer, and they would have come into contact with lots of people and speakers of other languages. And so some people say that with the Navajo that the language, if you take language, culture, and genetics, that the language wins out. And so basically they mean that people became Navajo speakers, and so who knows what languages were spoken by people they came into contact with. So who knows, maybe there is some truth to that, but I, I really don't know.
2: Hey there, this is Jules from commercial-free 88.3 KBYS.FM, McNeese Radio in Lake Charles, Louisiana. I host the afternoon drive from 5 to 7 p.m., and you can listen live at KBYS.FM. We're going to leave it there for this episode, and we hope you enjoyed it, and we'll tune in for part two. In closing, remember to check out the show notes at weeklylinguist.com. There you will find further information about this episode, like more information about the guest, a selected bibliography, and any resources mentioned in this episode. You can also subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms like iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and as of this week, Pandora, with more being added as we go. As the saying goes, if you've enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend, if you didn't, tell us. You can tell a friend by rating us five stars on iTunes and by writing a glowing endorsement in the reviews. Don't forget to subscribe when you're done and follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Weekly Linguists. Please send us your feedback, positive or critical, by emailing us at podcast at weekly That's podcast at weekly Tell us what you think, what we're doing well, what we can do better, or even suggest a topic for an upcoming episode.